0: BOOK FOUR, SECTIONS THREE THROUGH FIVE OF KING COLE. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. KING COLE BY UPTON SINCLAIR. BOOK FOUR, THE WILL OF KING COLE. SECTION THREE. THE CROWD MOVED DOWN THE STREET, SHOUTING AND CURSING AS IT WENT. SOMEONE STARTED TO SING THE Marseillaise, AND OTHERS TOOK IT UP, AND THE WORDS MOUNTED TO A FRENZY. Two ARMS, TO ARMS, YE BRAVE, MARCH ON, MARCH ON, ALL HEARTS RESOLVED ON VICTORY OR DEATH. THERE WERE THE OPPRESSED OF MANY NATIONS IN THIS CROWD. THEY SANG IN A SCORE OF LANGUAGES, BUT IT WAS THE SAME SONG. THEY WOULD SING A FEW BARS, AND THE YELLS OF OTHERS WOULD DROWN THEM OUT. MARCH ON, MARCH ON, ALL HEARTS RESOLVED. SOME RUSHED AWAY IN DIFFERENT DIRECTIONS TO SPREAD THE NEWS, AND VERY SOON THE WHOLE POPULATION OF THE VILLAGE WAS ON THE SPOT, THE MEN WAVING THEIR CAPS, THE WOMEN LIFTING UP THEIR HANDS AND SHRIEKING, OR STANDING TERRIFIED, REALIZING THAT BABIES COULD NOT BE FED UPON REVOLUTIONARY SINGING. Tim Rafferty was raised up on the shoulders of the crowd, and made to tell his story once more. While he was telling it his old mother came running, and her shrieks rang above the clamour. "'Tim! Tim! Come down from there! What's the matter with ye?' She was twisting her hands together in an agony of fright. Seeing Hal, she rushed up to him. "'Get him out of there, Joe! Sure the lad's gone crazy!' they'll turn us out of the camp, they'll give us nothing at all, and what'll become of us? Mother of God, what's the matter with the by? She called to Tim again, but Tim paid no attention, if he heard her. Tim was on the march to Versailles. Someone shouted that they would go to the hospital to protect the injured men from the damned lawyers. Here was something definite, and the crowd moved in that direction— Hal following with the stragglers, the women and children, and the less bold among the men. He noticed some of the clerks and salaried employees of the company. Presently he saw Jeff Cotton again, and heard him ordering these men to the office to get revolvers. Big Jack David came along with Jerry Minetti, and Hal drew back to consult with them. Jerry was on fire. It had come— THE REVOLT HE HAD BEEN LOOKING FORWARD TO FOR YEARS. WHY WERE THEY NOT MAKING SPEECHES, GETTING CONTROL OF THE MEN AND ORGANIZING THEM? JACK DAVID VOICED UNCERTAINTY. THEY HAD TO CONSIDER IF THIS OUTBURST COULD MEAN ANYTHING PERMANENT. JERRY ANSWERED THAT IT WOULD MEAN WHAT THEY CHOSE TO MAKE IT MEAN. IF THEY TOOK CHARGE, THEY COULD GUIDE THE MEN AND HOLD THEM TOGETHER. "'Wasn't that what Tom Olson had wanted?' "'No,' said the big Welshman. "'Olson had been trying to organize the men secretly, "'as preliminary to a revolt in all the camps. "'That was quite another thing from an open movement "'limited to one camp. "'Was there any hope of success for such a movement? "'If not, they would be foolish to start. "'They would only be making sure of their own expulsion.' Jerry turned to Hal. What did he think? And so at last Hal had to speak. It was hard for him to judge, he said. He knew so little about labor matters. It was to learn about them that he had come to North Valley. It was a hard thing to advise men to submit to such treatment as they had been getting. But on the other hand, anyone could see that a futile outbreak would discourage everybody and make it harder than ever to organize them." So much Hal spoke, but there was more in his mind, which he could not speak. He could not say to these men, "'I am a friend of yours, but I am also a friend of your enemy, and in this crisis I cannot make up my mind to which side I owe allegiance. I am bound by a duty of politeness to the masters of your lives. Also, I am anxious not to distress the girl I am to marry. No, he could not say such things. He felt himself a traitor for having them in his mind, and he could hardly bring himself to look these men in the eye. Jerry knew that he was in some way connected with the Harrigans. Probably he had told the rest of Hal's friends, and they had been discussing it and speculating about the meaning of it. Suppose they should think he was a spy." So Hal was relieved when Jack David spoke firmly. They would only be playing the game of the enemy if they let themselves be drawn in prematurely. They ought to have the advice of Tom Olson. "'Where was Olson?' Hal asked, and David explained that on the day when Hal had been thrown out of camp, Olson had got his time and set out for Sheridan, the local headquarters of the Union, to report the situation. He would probably not come back. He had got his little group together. He had planted the seed of revolt in North Valley. They discussed back and forth the problem of getting advice. It was impossible to telephone from North Valley without everything they said being listened to but the evening train for Pedro left in a few minutes, and Big Jack declared that someone ought to take it. The town of Sheridan was only fifteen or twenty miles from Pedro, and there would be a union official there to advise them, or they might use the long-distance telephone and persuade one of the union leaders in western city to take the midnight train and be in Pedro next morning. Hal, still hoping to withdraw himself, put this task off on Jack David. They emptied out the contents of their pockets, so that he might have funds enough, and the big Welshman darted off to catch the train. In the meantime, Jerry and Hal agreed to keep in the background, and to seek out the other members of their group, and warn them to do the same. End of section 3 Section four. This program was a convenient one for Hal, but as he was to find almost at once, it had been adopted too late. He and Jerry started after the crowd, which had stopped in front of one of the company buildings, and as they came nearer they heard someone making a speech. It was the voice of a woman, the tones rising clear and compelling. They could not see the speaker because of the throng, but Hal recognized her voice and caught his companion by the arm. It's Mary Burke! Mary Burke it was, for a fact, and she seemed to have the crowd in a kind of frenzy. She would speak one sentence, and there would come a roar from the throng. She would speak another sentence, and there would come another roar. Hal and Jerry pushed their way in to where they could make out the words of this litany of rage. Would they go down into the pit themselves, do ye think? They would not. Would they be dressed in silks and laces, do ye think? They would not. Would they have such fine soft hands, do ye think? They would not. Would they hold themselves too good to look at ye? they would not they would not and mary swept on if only ye'd stand together they'd come to ye on their knees to ask for terms but ye're cowards and they play on your fears ye're traitors and they buy ye out they break ye into pieces they do what they please with ye and then ride off in their private cars and leave gunmen to beat ye down and trample on your faces HOW LONG WILL YE STAND IT? HOW LONG?" The roar of the mob rolled down the street and back again. WE'LL NOT STAND IT! WE'LL NOT STAND IT! Men shook their clenched fists, women shrieked, even children shouted curses. WE'LL FIGHT THEM! WE'LL SLAVE NO MORE FOR THEM! And Mary found a magic word. "'We'll have a union!' she shouted. "'We'll get together and stay together. "'If they refuse us our rights, we'll know what to answer. "'We'll have a strike!' There was a roar like the crashing of thunder in the mountains. Yes, Mary had found the word. For many years it had not been spoken aloud in North Valley, but now it ran like a flash of gunpowder through the throng. "'Strike! Strike!' STRIKE! STRIKE! It seemed as if they would never have enough of it. Not all of them had understood Mary's speech, but they knew this word, STRIKE. They translated and proclaimed it in Polish and Bohemian and Italian and Greek. Men waved their caps, women waved their aprons. In the semi-darkness it was like some strange kind of vegetation tossed by a storm. Men clasped one another's hands. The more demonstrative of the foreigners fell upon one another's necks. Strike! 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 We're no longer slaves! cried the speaker. We're men, and we'll live as men. We'll work as men, or we'll not work at all. We'll no longer be a herd of cattle that they can drive about as they please. We'll organize. We'll stand together, shoulder to shoulder. Either we'll win together or we'll starve and die together. And not a man of us will yield, not a man of us will turn traitor. Is there anybody here who'll scab on his fellows?" There was a howl which might have come from a pack of wolves. Let the man who would scab on his fellows show his dirty face in that crowd. "'Ye'll stand by the union?" we'll stand by it. Ye'll swear? We'll swear." She flung her arms to heaven with a gesture of passionate adjuration. "'Swear it on your lives, to stick to the rest of us, and never a man of ye give way till ye've won. Swear! Swear!' Men stood, imitating her gesture, their hands stretched up to the sky. "'We swear! We swear!' ye'll not let them break ye ye'll not let them frighten ye no no stand by your word men stand by it tis the one chance for your wives and childer the girl rushed on exhorting with leaping words and passionate outflung arms a tall swaying figure of furious rebellion hal listened to the speech and watched the speaker marveling here was a miracle of the human soul. Here was hope born of despair. And the crowd around her, they were sharing the wonderful rebirth. Their waving arms, their swaying forms, responded to Mary as an orchestra to the baton of a leader. A thrill shook Hal, a thrill of triumph. He had been beaten down himself. He had wanted to run from this place of torment. But now there was hope in North Valley. Now there would be victory, freedom. Ever since he had come to the coal country, the knowledge had been growing in how that the real tragedy of these people's lives was not their physical suffering, but their mental depression, the dull, hopeless misery in their minds, This had been driven into his consciousness day by day, both by what he saw and by what others told him. Tom Olson had first put it into words, Your worst troubles are inside the heads of the fellows you're trying to help. How could hope be given to men in this environment of terrorism? Even Hal himself, young and free as he was, had been brought to despair. He came from a class which is accustomed to say, Do this, or do that, and it will be done. But these mind-slaves had never known that sense of power, of certainty. On the contrary, they were accustomed to having their efforts balked at every turn, their every impulse to happiness or achievement crushed by another's will. But here was this miracle of the human soul, here was hope in North Valley. Here were the people rising, and Mary Burke at their head. It was his vision come true-Mary Burke with a glory in her face, and her hair shining like a crown of gold. Mary Burke mounted upon a snow-white horse, wearing a robe of white, soft and lustrous, like Joan of Arc or a leader in a suffrage parade. Yes, and she was at the head of a host. He had the music of its marching in his ears. Underneath Hal's jesting words had been a real vision, a real faith in this girl. Since that day when he had first discovered her, a wild rose of the mining camp taking in the family wash, he had realized that she was no pretty young working girl, "'but a woman with a mind and a personality. "'She saw farther, she felt more deeply "'than the average of these wage-slaves. "'Her problem was the same as theirs, yet more complex. "'When he had wanted to help her "'and had offered to get her a job, "'she had made clear that what she craved "'was not merely relief from drudgery, "'but a life with intellectual interest.' So then the idea had come to him that Mary should become a teacher, a leader of her people. She loved them, she suffered for them and with them, and at the same time she had a mind that was capable of seeking out the causes of their misery. But when he had gone to her with plans of leadership, he had been met by her corroding despair. Her pessimism had seemed to mock his dreams." her contempt for these mine-slaves had belittled his efforts in their behalf and in hers. And now here she was, taking up the role he had planned for her. Her very soul was in this shouting throng, he thought. She had lived the lives of these people, shared their every wrong, been driven to rebellion with them being a mere man hal missed one important point about this startling development he did not realize that mary's eloquence was addressed not merely to the rafferties and the warhopes and the rest of the north valley mine slaves but to a certain magazine cover girl clad in a mackintosh and a pale green hat and a soft and filmy and horribly expensive motoring veil End of section 4 Section 5 Mary's speech was brought to a sudden end. A group of the men had moved down the street, and there arose a disturbance there. The noise of it swelled louder, and more people began to move in that direction. Mary turned to look, and all at once the whole throng surged down the street. The trouble was at the hospital. In front of this building was a porch, and on it Cartwright and Alex Stone were standing with a group of the clerks and office employees, among whom Hal saw Predovich, Johnson the postmaster, and Cy Adams. At the foot of the steps stood Tim Rafferty, with a swarm of determined men at his back. He was shouting, "'We want them lawyers out of there!' The superintendent himself had undertaken to parley with him. "'There are no lawyers in here, Rafferty.' "'We don't trust you!' And the crowd took up the cry. "'We'll see for ourselves!' "'You can't go into this building,' declared Cartwright." "'I'm going to see my father,' shouted Tim. "'I've got a right to see my father, ain't I?' "'You can see him in the morning. You can take him away if you want to. We've no desire to keep him. But he's asleep now, and you can't disturb the others.' "'You weren't afraid to disturb them with your damned lawyers!' And there was a roar of approval, so loud that Cartwright's denial could hardly be heard." "'There have been no lawyers near him, I tell you.' "'It's a lie,' shouted Warhope. "'They've been in there all day, and you know it. "'We mean to have them out.' "'Go on, Tim,' cried Andy, the Greek boy, pushing his way to the front. "'Go on!' cried the others. And thus encouraged, Rafferty started up the steps. "'I mean to see my father.' As Cartwright caught him by the shoulder, he yelled, "'Let me go, I say.' IT WAS EVIDENT THAT THE SUPERINTENDENT WAS TRYING HIS BEST NOT TO USE VIOLENCE. HE WAS ORDERING HIS OWN FOLLOWERS BACK AT THE SAME TIME THAT HE WAS HOLDING THE BOY. BUT TIM'S BLOOD WAS UP. HE SHOVED FORWARD, AND THE SUPERINTENDENT, EITHER STRIKING HIM OR TRYING TO WARD OFF A BLOW, THREW HIM BACKWARDS DOWN THE STEPS. THERE WAS AN UPROAR OF RAGE FROM THE THRONG. They surged forward, and at the same time some of the men on the porch drew revolvers. The meaning of that situation was plain enough. In a moment more the mob would be up the steps, and there would be shooting. And if once that happened, who could guess the end? Wrought up as the crowd was, it might not stop till it had fired every company building, perhaps not until it had murdered every company representative. Hal had resolved to keep in the background, but he saw that to keep in the background at that moment would be an act of cowardice, almost a crime. He sprang forward, his cry rising above the clamor, Stop, men, stop! There was probably no other man in North Valley who could have got himself heated at that moment. But Hal had their confidence. He had earned the right to be heard. Had he not been to prison for them? Had they not seen him behind the bars? Joe Smith! The cry ran from one end of the excited throng to the other. Hal was fighting his way forward, shoving men to one side, imploring, commanding silence. Tim Rafferty, wait! And Tim, recognizing the voice, obeyed. Once clear of the press, Howe sprang upon the porch, where Cartwright did not attempt to interfere with him. "'Men!' he cried. "'Hold on a moment. This isn't what you want. You don't want to fight!' He paused for an instant, but he knew that no mere negative would hold them at that moment. They must be told what they did want. Just now he had learned the particular words that would carry— and he proclaimed them at the top of his voice, "'What you want is a union! A strike!' He was answered by a roar from the crowd, the loudest yet. Yes, that was what they wanted, a strike. And they wanted Joe Smith to organize it, to lead it. He had been their leader once. He had been thrown out of camp for it. How he had got back they were not quite clear but here he was, and he was their darling. Hurrah for him! They would follow him to hell and back. And wasn't he the boy with the nerve, standing there on the porch of the hospital, right under the very noses of the bosses, making a union speech to them, and the bosses never daring to touch him? The crowd, realizing this situation, went wild with delight. The English-speaking men shouted assent to his words, and those who could not understand shouted because the others did. They did not want fighting, of course not. Fighting would not help them. What would help them was to get together and stand a solid body of free men. There would be a union committee, able to speak for all of them to say that no man would go to work any more until justice was secured. They would have an end to the business of discharging men because they asked for their rights, of blacklisting men and driving them out of the district because they presumed to want what the laws of the State awarded them. End of section 5